Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is back and better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible and comes right to your front door four times a year. Each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid KingCast hosts. This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, well, you'll need to subscribe. To do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. That's 25, 25 whole percent. That's a quarter off your entire order just for listening to the show and plugging in that code KingCast. Also, you might be aware that Fangoria's Notorious Chainsaw Awards have locked in their nominees and they want you, yes you, to vote for your favorite genre offerings from last year. In order to do that, all you got to do is head on over to Fangoria.com slash vote to cast your ballot before February 27th. Now, with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast and the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have a very exciting episode this week, gang, uh, and one with a particular theme. The end of the goddamn world. Our <laughs> guest making his second appearance on the show is the author of a slew of excellent horror novels, including A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, Survivor Song, last year's The Pallbearers Club, and of course, 2018's The Cabin at the End of the World, which is now the basis for a brand new film from director M. Night Shyamalan by the name of Knock at the Cabin. He's here today to talk about another end of the world story, Stephen King's The End of the Whole Mess. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the KingCast stage, Mr. Paul Tremblay. How are you doing today, Paul? Hey, thanks for having me back, guys, to talk oh, about the cheery yeah. end of the worldness. Mm. <laughs> well, it seems to be a hot topic lately. Uh, <laughs> things things seem to be spiraling, maybe a little bit. This feels like the right time for this movie. You know, mm. I, I think it'll have a little more, a little more oomph than maybe it would have in say, I don't know, 2019. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the way, before we get into the uh, knock at the cabin stuff, I was reviewing your Wikipedia page today oh, and noted that um, Team Downey. Uh, has the rights to head full of ghosts. Is anything going on with that? Yeah. So they're one of two. I, I'm not sure. I said, Oh boy. Cause I remember at one point they had said something like <laughs> somebody on Wikipedia did something about paid millions of dollars or something. I was like, that's news to me. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, team Downey and Allegiance theater are the two production companies that have really been working on a head full of ghosts since wow. Uh, May of 2015. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So they, you know, they've gone through multiple financers. Tell them to hurry up. Yeah, a head full of ghosts would have filmed the summer of 2020, you know, if not for that sort of mini apocalypse that we're still mm. living through. No um, shit. But Did they have a cast in place and everything. They had, you know, it like per, right before the pandemic hit, they announced they even sold like foreign film distribution deal. It was going to be Scott Cooper directing, and oh my god, why am I forgetting her name uh, as uh, as an actor? Estelle uh, Getty. 
<laughs> no. E. Arthur. We're just going to go through the Golden Arr, Girls. She was in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's a daughter of another. She's daughter of Andy McDowell. Why am I spacing oh, on her name? Um, oh, shit. What's her name? The one with the dirty feet. Um, Parker Qualley. Sorry. Qualley. Yes. 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 Uh, yes. Uh, and so I think that was probably going to film in the summer, but everything fell apart. And mainly the thing that fell apart the most was the the financer sort of backed out in a <laughs> not so awesome way. But uh, those two producer or production teams have a new uh, new financer. They've got new director, new screenplay. So it does feel like that's gaining momentum again. But we'll see. You know, like I said, <laughs> it's been in the works for a while. Maybe, um, maybe knock at the cabin will sort of speed that along a little bit if this one hits. Uh, yeah. You told us before we started recording that you haven't seen the movie yet. We're recording this way in the distant past from when you're hearing it <laughs> yes uh so th- it's very early days but uh hey the world might end by the time uh by the time this happens <laughs> oh, you never I know That'd be great. Maybe, maybe this is just for us you never know yeah. yeah the world splits open the day before the movie's open this is sort of the strange sequel to the end of the whole mess adaptation that i watched <laughs> yesterday <laughs> um so you haven't seen it so you can't really weigh in on on that side of things but I do know that the script was rewritten at a certain point, which implies that they may have changed some of the things uh, that you did in the novel. Uh, is that is that accurate? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say briefly, you know, the original screenplay was written by Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman. Um, in fact, I think that screenplay was on like the blacklist or the horror mm. version of the blacklist. It might just oh, be wow. the blacklist. I don't remember. Um, but then when M. Night came on as both producer and, and director, you know, he, he took that screenplay and rewrote it. Um, yeah. How did you I feel did, about that? I did get sent. <laughs> I did get to read the screenplay. I got sent a link, sort of like Mission Impossible, that once I opened it, uh, it self-destructed, including my <laughs> laptop, within four hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, in the, you know, and even like I took an early phone call at night, like November of 21. I appreciate that he was very upfront with me when he told me in broad strokes, you know, what he would be changing story-wise. Um, yeah. So, I think... You know, there's obviously for anyone who's read the book and seen the trailers, there's a lot that's very similar. But yeah. there, there will also be, you know, I would say like the first two acts are pretty much the book with some minor changes in the third act. The third acts of each are, are different. No. Uh, how did you personally feel about the changes? Oh, I mean, I think it's going to be different when I when I see it. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'd be lying if I wasn't egoless about this whole thing. I mean, I prefer my ending better. Now, you know, and that, of course. granted, of course. you know, books and movies are different, but like, I don't know, like if I were to rewrite that book now, which I don't want to, I'm glad I don't have to, there were things I would change. The ending would not be one of them. The ending mm. I, I would be willing to, that's a hill I'm willing to die on violently, right. violently if necessary. Right. I've never there, written a novel, obviously, but I would imagine that endings are they got to be one of the most personal parts of the novel to the writer no? because you know resolving a narrative Mm. is going to be one of your biggest tasks as an author isn't it like is that fair to say yeah i mean no for sure i think that's a good description of it in in the in the way that i work too although the ending did change for me part way through the novel um but let's say you know i i really worked on that book for like 18 months Uh, Mm -hmm. you know and that's that's not even counting the the, uh, the edits and copy edits that I get from my publisher. I mean, so that was a story that I just lived with day in and day out. Like I'm not at least, you know, especially when I was still teaching high school then, um, 
you know, so I have a day job, but like in my free time, I'm spending all my time thinking about this novel that I'm just living in for 18 months. So yeah, yeah. it's hard not to be precious about it. But at the same time, you know, so many of my stories are riffs or, or have been inspired by other stories. So I'd be hypocritical if I mm. were to be too precious about the whole thing. But yeah, mm. no, like, especially with, with Cab in the book, you know, I'm not a chess player, but I kind of felt like I tried to play out every possible move. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of feel like based on what I wrote up to a certain point, like I sort of considered every possible ending. And this is the one that I think was the most satisfying. Um, is mm. it the most dramatically satisfying? I don't know. But in terms of the story, in terms of what I believe and what I feel is right, and I'm talking like my own like personal set of values, um, mm. that was the ending. Right. Well, there is a thread of ambiguity in the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, just down to, you know, Redmond. Is, is Redmond the right. person who assaulted, you know, the guy or not? You know, and it's like there's this whole thing where that's kind of the to me, one of the points of, of, and what I love so much about it is that, is that you could always, you could bend yourself into pretzels to try to explain either crazy or sane say, say sure. things. Right. And, and there's, a comes a point where the sane person starts to flip into the crazy person, you know, trying to bend and right. explain away stuff, which I think is fascinating, but I understand why um, ambiguity might not be the, uh, main flavor that they would want in a in a uh, a, a multi thousand you know screen release you know no uh, may, maybe maybe they keep it I don't know but the, uh, my assumption would be that would be something that would have been at least watered down a little bit for a, a movie adaptation right no absolutely I mean I can't say like you know comparing a movie to a book like it, you know movies it's hard to it's hard to commit to sort of that ambiguity given the number of dollars involved you know etc. You know, and it's hard. Actually, that'd be a great show. I, you know, I was talking to another friend about a podcast, so we should come up with like a list of great sort of ambiguous movies. Um, but you know, it's funny when you were joking about like you know, it feel like now feels like the time. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, when I started writing the book, uh, I wrote it. I started writing it in earnest the summer of 2016, which was you know the the presidential primaries and sort of the rise, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> the storm clouds of Trump coming. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it sort of felt. And then the bulk of the book happened, like right, I wrote right after he was elected. So, I mean, it, that definitely felt super apocalyptic, apocalyptic-y, is that a word? Right. <laughs> uh, to me at the time. But like that, one of the things with the book, again, I know it's a different sort of affect than with a movie, but like the driving force of the book was, I was sort of building off the idea that like whenever you turn on the television or flip open your phone, it feels like the world is ending. Yeah. Um, but you don't know for sure. Maybe something's already happened that would eventually lead to the end, but we don't know. So like, to me, that was one of the scarier parts of the book, uh, at least yeah. in, in theory was that like, you just don't know. Right. You know, I, I, like I, I love an ambiguous movie. You mm -hmm. know, I love, I love when a movie puts all the puzzle pieces out in front of me, but it doesn't give me the answer. Yeah. And it's like mm -hmm. a thing that I can chew on for however long until I finally come up with the head cannon that is like, well, this is what I think happened here. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love that. Unfortunately, uh, I don't think the public is, is too hot on that. You're not going to yeah. you're never going to see a movie that's completely ambiguous that pulls in three hundred million dollars at right. the box office. It's just not going to happen. People want mm. people want right. closure. You know, yeah, what and, mean? Uh, I've got I've got my take shelter T-shirt on right now. That movie wouldn't make three hundred million dollars. <laughs> well, take, take shelter, shelter isn't ambiguous at all. You not at the end. Uh, I, mean, I think you, it is. Really? Maybe I think you get my, a very my, definitive ending that the storm's yeah, coming. 
I don't know, maybe it's my own personal leanings, but also like even yeah. the director himself, Nick, I don't want to spoil the movie for people who haven't seen it because it's brilliant. <laughs> right. But like he views the ending as purely sort of metaphor- metaphorical. Like, mm, okay. This is this is the the husband and wife sort of acknowledging, oh, this is what he sees, or you know, this is the difficulty that they're going to have to mm. get through to continue on, etc. Man, I love that movie. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm fully really so obsessed with it. Good. So, can can I ask you something that I that it's always fascinating to me, especially from for uh, an author? You 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 said you spent eighteen months with these characters and building yeah. out this world. Um. It's easy for me, having read the book, to look at the trailer or the poster and go, yeah, Bautista was like born to play Leonard, right? It's like, whatever, like, is that, but how is it for you? Like when you see uh, the casting, like Rupert Hmm. Grint and Bautista, you know, and and I know you haven't seen the finished film, so you have no idea if they nail the performances or not. But you look at the the trailer, you know, when they meet, when Leonard meets when it's like, it's like, oh shit, that's the book. Like I looked at that and I'm like, those are the characters, you know, maybe not as distinct in my mind, but like it just locked in a place that went like correct, you know, in my brain yeah. when I saw that. Is is that do you have a similar feeling or is it more complicated yeah. for you since uh, you originated those characters? Right. Similar, but maybe more complicated. I mean, just because you know, so the images I have of the cabin itself of the characters are are, are different. Right. You know, that said, I think what you know, casting is perfect for the movie. Um, yeah. And in keeping with the King cast <laughs> and I emailed him like a long time ago before this, but I actually emailed Stephen King to talk about like, Hey, you know, your experiences with adaptations and stuff, since I'm a total newbie at this. Um, and, and he had mentioned, you know, there are some times where, you know, it, it feels totally different, but there are other times where he said there are other times where it feels like the filmmaker sort of walked into my head and took everything and it yeah. looks just like that. So I, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. Like it doesn't feel like someone walked in, but I did get to go visit the set in May for two days. So I didn't mm. get to see the cast. So I actually saw that before I saw the trailers months later. Right. Um, so that was incredible seeing that. I think the actors in particular really get the heart of the book in terms of the emotion of it. Uh, right. You know, I'm super confident that, you know, they're going to nail the performances and, um, and you know, the ones I, I talked to, which were most of them, they were all super complimentary of the book, which was amazing. I even had them sign like a copy of Cabin. I brought like a dork huh. copy of my book to have, huh. you know, Jonathan Groff and, and everyone else sign. Right. Um, Fuck yeah, yeah. I would have done the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, so that part of it is, no, I mean, it looks different, but it, it definitely had has the feel. Right. It would have um, been fucking funny if you showed up and they're like, you know what? I don't really like your book. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you're like, know. Jonathan Groff's a fucking asshole. No, uh, he was like the sweetest guy ever. He was so nice. They were all so nice. That was one of my favorite parts. So I was there for two days and actually for mm. much of the, t- much of the first day when, when night works, he won't watch the action live. He'll slip into this room where there's a monitor cause he wants to see what it looks like on screen, which makes sense. Right. right? Um, so I actually sat in there for much of the time while he was, while he was working the yeah. second day, I ended up spending more time after a scene was shot, hanging out with the actors. Uh, mm. and they were so, like I said, they were so nice. They were so gracious with their time and answering questions and stuff that that was really cool. No. Answering your questions. That's so fucking weird to me. No, they were, they were asking me questions about the book too, which is really uh, funny. Yeah, it's it's a strong cast. Um I'm you know, I'm curious what we listen, we have been chasing M Knight to get him on this fucking show since we started it. Hmm. Like I I am a huge Shyamalan fan. There's a few of them. Uh I won't go to bat for. But on the whole, like <laughs> yeah. I, I find him to be just uh a tremendous filmmaker and he's made, you know, some of my favorite movies, yeah. you know, so I'll take the good with the bad basically. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, I've well, kind of I know given he's up a big good... Stephen King fan and Joe Hill fan too. He's, he asked me about Joe once on set. So yeah, I know, I know, know he is. makes that connection. Yeah. We've danced I, I, around with the, his like publicists mm-hmm. and like people at his pr- production outfit. We've we've received all the signs that yes, it can happen. It just hasn't happened yet. So. It's one of those. Th- like well, it's one of those things where it's like we'll inquire like way ahead of time, which is usually what we do. We say, right. hey, we'd like to do an episode tied to the release of this. Um, if you agree to it, we don't have to set a date right now, but like. You know, when we get closer, we'll figure it out and we'll try to do it outside the uh, press gauntlet so that such and such person isn't like, you know, dealing with 1500 other right. responsibilities at that time. But it, it's like it, Jordan Peele is the same way mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where we'll inquire early and they'll say, oh, well, they're they're, they're busy right now and aren't, you know, agreeing to anything at the moment. Yeah. And then it'll get closer and it's like, ah, they're real busy doing press. I don't think we can make it work. <laughs> and then we'll inquire afterward and it'll be like, they're not doing press right now. You know, yeah, wait till the next project. <laughs> so, yeah. And it, yeah. so this like cycle continues and it's, I don't know, on both of those guys, I would d- 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 remove vital parts of my anatomy uh, in order <laughs> you were to gonna get gonna them go on with the, the left nut, weren't you? I can tell you were, you were debating whether or not to say with the right, the, the right hangs lower and I <laughs> yeah. can't have that. You know, I need even, even balls. You need symmetry. You know? We can get yeah. you some truck nuts down there instead. Just replace them all. <laughs> I like, and see, what you need to do is lop off a piece of something and, and send, this is how serious we are. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to sending M night a pinky in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that that would help our cause, I, I really think. But the question I'm getting to is, what is that dude like? Mm. Oh, he was uh, on. I mean, he was very personal. You, I could tell. Um, I mean, I was there for two days, so I maybe you know I'm going to say all good things. Obviously, I thought yes. like his relationship with the, the cast and crew was very warm. It's clear that people, you know, the actors and the crew liked working with him. Um, you know, he you know he, he wasn't like yelling at anybody. It was all very positive and. And hugs and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, you can tell that actors like working with him because someone like yeah. Rupert Grint continues to work with him, obviously, right? right. And actually, yeah. uh, uh, Nikki Amuka Bird, this is her second movie with him, I believe, as well. Um, hmm. Yeah, so that part was cool. Like, because he hired such a high powered DP, um, oh, I forget his Wait, name. Wait, who's the DP? Uh, Jaron Plash, I'm saying his name wrong, Plashkey, but he did, um, he did Ro- David Robert Eggers' movies. Oh, uh, oh, no shit. Yeah. So, like, again, it's going to be a visually stunning movie. So it felt like there was a little bit more time be- being taken in between shots because he was setting up the lighting and the cameras and stuff. So it felt like there was a little bit more downtime. You know, a night was just talking about, we were talking basketball because he's a big 76ers fan and other stuff like that. So, no, it was a fun visit. No. Nice. Well, I suppose we should get into the discussion of the, the topic mm. that we're here uh to to chat about today uh we already did your stephen king origin story the last time you were here that's right so we don't need to futz around with that (laughs) um let's start here uh paul for anyone who has not read the end of the whole mess would you be willing to lay out the general plot of this story yeah actually i mean you could take us all the way through it yeah Uh, spoilers for a story that was originally written in 1986 right 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 was it 86 holy cow it was omni magazine which we'll loop back around to that in a minute because there's some really ironic shit said about Waco, Texas in this story. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, so the, the end of the whole mess, it's a first person and it starts off as, um, so in this short story, he's a writer, not a 
you know, the adaptation as a, as a director, but he's saying, mm-hmm. Hey, I've only got like an hour or two left to tell this story. And you don't know why he, you know, he hints as to why there, there may only be so much time. That's really the story about his genius kid, like ultra genius kid brother, uh, who eventually sort of makes a discovery on the outskirts of Waco, Texas, um, in regards to what makes people violent and what makes them so awful. Uh, and it boils down to, to there being something in the water potentially that can make them nice. And uh, yeah. as an adult, his brother sort of helps his <laughs> helps his genius brother with a plan to spread like the nice water around the world. Uh, and when you when I'm telling it like this, it makes the story sound so stupid and awful. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, but what, well, what does the nice water do? Yeah, it, it just it sort of takes away the you know violent and I guess evil urges. I suppose it makes people more yeah. peaceful. Yeah, yeah. It's like a sedative. Right. It makes everyone kind of a hippie. It does. Yeah, he calls it the calmative, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, you know, because it's a short story, it doesn't get into if like punk and metal are changed or if people stop playing that stuff. Because then that would have been really sad. Um, yeah, I really so, hope uh, you're just brought to its knees right. by the comative. <laughs> I, I really hope uh, Lumi Labs isn't uh, sponsoring this episode because we're going to have to make a uh, some sort of joke about it being a comative in, in the ad read. Uh, (laughs) this one if so um i really love king playing with these kind of end time stories right Mm -hmm. and and he i mean the stand is obviously the you know the king of the mountain on 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 that just in terms of sheer length and the ability to live in that world uh for 1600 fucking pages um but like i i don't know whenever stephen king's mind turns to like everything's gonna be over. Like I'm even thinking like the end of revival, you know, it's like every time he turns Mm -hmm. to, to that kind of thought, like, I don't know, there's just something about it. That's weirdly like a comfort blanket for me. Like I found (laughs) that revisiting this and it, it shouldn't be, it should be the opposite. It should give me anxiety, but there's just something about how he deals with it in such a matter of fact way. Yeah. I don't know. It's oddly comforting to me, you know, maybe I'm thinking, uh, in this story, I mean, even the title of it, it's a little bit jokey, right? I mean, not that yeah. the story is jokey. Yeah. It's the end of the whole mess. It sort of implies that we sort of deserve it. Um, mm. it, it did make me think, and I'm, I'm I'm terrible at remembering titles, but the last story in the Bizarre of Bad Dreams, mm. um, that story is an end of the world story, but it's really a post end of the world story. It's so devastating and heartbreaking. Not at all, you know, totally different emotional, uh, emotional sort of feels, um, you know, to that story than this one. But one of the things I loved about this story when I read it, you know, I first read it, you know, almost 30 years ago was uh, sort of the narrative style. Like, here's this idea of this guy, you know, it's sort of like the old epistolary thing where it's okay, I have to write, tell you the story before I die kind of thing, which has been done before. Mm-hmm. But I think he does it in such a clever way where he gives you a little bit of hints as to why, you know, what's coming, what, why he has to do it this way. Of course, only Stephen King could write like a 50 page short story in, in what, two hours. <laughs> That's the one part like the writer me now sort of enjoys like, man, if I had two hours, this, the story would have been a lot shorter. <laughs> right. it, it, it's two pages, baby, Max. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, it, speaking as a writer, I think one of the first things we should dive into in this is that King loves to play with writing as a form uh, mm. a lot and I, it seems like in these short stories he will sometimes use them as a way to experiment with that and he does that here because you said he's a writer and he's trying to tell the story and it's revealed that essentially he's taken an overdose of this calmative that's going right. to you know give him like 
is going to turn them into a vegetable essentially. And that's what the, how the world is ending is that this thing passive, there's like world peace, everything is fine for a little bit. And then everybody starts getting like real bad Alzheimer's and dementia. Yeah. And that's a side effect of, of this. Um, and so he's, he's getting a concentrated dose of this and he's, he's about to die and he's trying to tell the story. Um, and as he is going through the story, it starts off, I'm a writer. I'm, you know, it's very complex sentences and, you know, reminisces, you know, mm-hmm. very much Stephen Kingy. And as yeah. it's going through, by the time you get to the end, like there's grammatical errors, he's slipping away. You can feel the writer slipping yeah. away. So is that something as a, as a writer and a novelist yourself, did you look at that and go, Go, oh, I see what you did there. This is fun. You know, this is a really cool little thing. Yeah, oh, 100%. Um, I mean, when I write short stories, I love, I'm so drawn to, you know, different narrative tricks and techniques like that. So no, like that was something that really stood out to me. And, you know, in that collection in particular, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, that always, even though I, I haven't, until this week where I went back and reread uh, Whole Mess and a few other stories, I hadn't revisited that book in like 30 years. But that was one of the stories that really stood out to me is like, oh, like a little bit of a light bulb. Like, oh, you mm. can do that with a story? That's really cool. Right. You know, even like having like the handwritten gibberish sort of at the end was just like, right. that, I don't know, just that, that, that ex- it makes it just feel that much more real to mm-hmm. me. So you've you've written a book ostensibly about the world possibly ending. And this is a story about, you know, uh, the world ending. Two, two very different scenarios. Yeah. Um, can I assume that... Well, no, that doesn't make sense. Let me try it from another angle. What I was going to say is, can I assume that your picture of the end of the world, what you would imagine that to be, is all contained within uh, Kevin at the end of the world? But I don't think that's probably the case. It's more ambiguous than that. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, I would say, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm younger than Steve (laughs) by, you know, 20 years or so. um, But... I mean, he lived through the 70s and 80s as an adult. And for me, the 80s, like so many of us, was, you know, <laughs> the Stranger Things kids, right? Um, yeah. You know, the 80s was my, I started, you know, as a preteen and ended the decade as a, you know, almost a 20-year-old. You know, so for me, like a fear of dying in nuclear war was like a daily, mm. was a daily thing. It was something that, you know, I lived with, I obsessed over. Um, and so, you know, as an adult in, in writing fiction, you know, so many, particularly in my early work, my early short stories was always about an, a looming apocalypse or an apocalypse had just happened or we're in the middle of it kind of thing. It's just, you know, something I've had to try to write out of my system a little bit. Um, but I always find myself being drawn back, uh, I don't know, to that horrible thing because it's one of the things that scares me the most. You know, in the 80s, it was that, I, you know, I would die in a nuclear war. And now the fear is that, you know, I would be alive while my kids and loved ones are are going to all see the end of the world too. Not to bring everybody down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're about to bring it down even further because yeah, really my question was, yeah, what is like, of course no one wants the world to end. Right. right. I'll preface this by saying that, you know, so we're not advocating for the end of the world, but if you could choose a scenario <laughs> in which the world ended, what would it be? Oh man, you know, I think the end of the whole mess might actually be the way to go. Like, I mean, I think that's sort of part of maybe the slight appeal of that is that right. it's like three years of awesome peace, and then, I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, but the, then you, yeah, without, but like, then without I, saying I, like Alzheimer's isn't a bad way to go, it obviously is. But I don't right. know, like, yeah, Alzheimer's is fucking terrifying. No, yes, 
You know, anytime I've encountered that in in real life a couple of times, and yeah. it is like it's it's horrific. It's the idea of going mad or losing control of your mental faculties is to me like one of the worst. I, I like I would rather do a hundred years in prison. You know, like the loss of being able to discern between the real and the not real, I think would just be utterly terrifying. No, and Um, I I fear that Stephen King writes about all the time, right? I think he said in interviews too. Oh, for Uh, sure. Like in this story sort of has both. I mean, it has like his apocalyptic stuff that he does. It has the fear of, you know, losing your mind. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's also like a monkey's paw kind of tale. Like be careful what you wish for. Yeah, right. You are right that three years of throughout like a three-year grace period before the shit hits the fan is you know um probably more than we can ever reasonably hope for i would imagine that if the end of the world occurs we're not gonna get a that sort of a heads up on the deal you know just in terms of you know getting to getting to have uh some salad years before the before it all goes to hell but but that's what that's what you would pick like i mean obviously you were frightened of nuclear war yeah um so you probably wouldn't choose that but more than a zombie uprising more than an alien invasion more than a biblical apocalypse yeah i don't want things to be to be ouchy (laughs) no no roland emmerich uh yeah can it (laughs) be like uh uh, can it be like the leftovers but everyone just disappears but then like what you know where do you go i don't know Mm. um yeah there's a fear of ouchy that would that would probably fall under biblical apocalypse i think you know, yeah. beyond the, you know, yeah. the, the moon turning black as sackcloth and the, <laughs> right. the seas turning to blood. But, um, well, and, and let's be honest, none of us are going to get raptured if, if that ends up being back now. True. We're going to be the ones left holding the bag down here. So I, that's <laughs> not a really good, uh, I, <clears throat> what's yours? Best the one that I think I could pro well, okay. So there's a zombie apocalypse and then there's the, the stand style, you're immune and humanity's wiped out by a plague kind of right. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a little bit about it on the show about how there's a little bit of a wish fulfillment thing oh, going on with the stand where it's like, what sure. would you do if the world was your oyster and you could just go wherever you wanted? You could, yeah, I feel like I would be good at planning stuff uh, in a stand style thing, but I'm also <laughs> fucking terrible at like gardening activities. And- <laughs> well, I mean, well, yeah, I can plan parties. Yeah, um, we're no, gonna have I, arts be, and crafts I, time. And you then... know, in the stand, there's the there are people that are like, like, oh, I know how to fucking run hydroelectric plants and shit. Right. I am not that person. I'd be like Tom Colin setting up mannequins and shit in the fucking oh, yeah. street. You know, um, yeah, we'd be like, do you need? A, does anyone need a podcast? Yes, we can do a podcast. We <laughs> know that. Want That's me to read like, you the Stephen King yeah. book? Yeah, I can't. I can't fix things. I can't cook. Um, yes, I, I can't if you garden. Read it, I would recommend reading Chuck Wendig's two books. Uh, the first one is definitely a, uh, a response, modern response slash riff to uh, to the stand. Mm. It's called Wanderers. I don't know if you've heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. And his uh, follow up, uh, Wayward, was out uh, this year. But yeah, the Wanderers, uh, like in terms of like, and, and the follow up book is the, it's a little bit more about the after. So like these people who can set up like electrical grids and it's like, oh, I'd be totally useless. No one has like a job for the math teacher horror writer. <laughs> I don't think I would want to live. I don't want to. I don't. If there were an apocalyptic event and I survived into the post apocalypse, I don't want to do work at that point. <laughs> 
you know, to me, that would be one of the saving graces of an apocalypse mm-hmm. and, or, or surviving it anyway is, OK, no more bills, no more fucking clocking into work every day. No more like any of that nonsense. Like right now we can just live like perhaps human beings were intended to live just like, you know, do whatever you want. Survive. Yeah. Basically, then you get bit by a tick and die because there's no antibiotics. Well, or... you know, I grew up playing Oregon Trail on the computers at school, okay. and so I, I think I'm pretty prepared for that sort of thing, yeah. especially oh, dysentery. No, yeah, gonna, Scott gets dysentery. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely be the one to get dysentery, let's be yeah. honest. I think it, it, in, if it were me, if it were me calling the shots, and I think I've mentioned this on the show at some point, but I would like, I'm going alien invasion all mm. the way. Like, mm. I want some spectacle with my apocalypse. There was that piece of it, like the awe of being able to see yeah, <laughs> the tripods like, and shit. Yeah. yeah, to finally have, oh my fucking God, I would love a world of worlds situation. <laughs> um, just like <laughs> to see with my own eyeballs, because like alien shit has always been kind of a a, a back burner interest for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think I would, I would love to see that with my own two eyes. Like, mm-hmm. you don't mean alien feces, literal alien shit. You mean alien, sorry. <laughs> yes, in the vernacular. <laughs> Um, just just be awestruck by this technology and see what the fuck do those things even look like? You know, even if it's just the ships, I don't necessarily need to meet an alien. Yeah, you know, I imagine that would, you know, shatter my mind uh, instantly. Right. But yeah, I would. I would totally. I would. I would be more open to that than zombies, nuclear hmm. war, or nuclear winter, or. Yeah biblical shit i would be really annoyed if the all the stuff in the bible turned out to be true (laughs) i've done a lot of shit talking and i don't want i don't want to fucking go out knowing that i was wrong all along you know uh that would be upsetting now part of me is imagining like the alien invasion you're like oh my god you know part of your brain's like wow this is amazing and the aliens show up but you can tell right before they kill you that they're morons they're just like us like how do you turn this thing on yeah The, the universe has an incredibly dark sense of humor and that wouldn't surprise me. They all, the aliens landed and they got out wearing MAGA hats and fucking like chewing fistfuls of sunflower seeds. And yeah. they got a shotgun rack in their UFO. I would be like, yeah, this makes sense. This is this is how it was probably always going to end up. You wrote a book about the end of the world. What's your take on people like like myself or maybe yourself who are who are fascinated with the the concept of it and living to see it? Yes, yeah, so I, I bounce back and forth. I mean. You know, on one hand, it's like, I don't know, Western art has, has been obsessed with it since the 1900s. You can read about all sorts of, you know, sort of end of the world clubs and doomsday cults and people who think that the world was ending, you know, mm-hmm. for, you know for a variety of reasons. Just now, obviously, we can enumerate, you know, the, the climate, the, even the economical. We can enumerate all these different ways that, you know, we could go poof, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, you know, so I don't want to be glib. It is different now than it was you know, in the late 1800s, et cetera. Sure. Um, this is the place to be glib though. It's fine. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, w- with the book itself with cabin, like I, I purposely wanted to not give a specific reason as to why, you know, right. And because I wanted the reader sort of bring their own anxieties to it. Like I typically don't start a book with, I was going to say a political bent in mind. It was sort of quasi political, but I really, in the beginning, it's like, I want this book to feel like what it feels like right now, uh, you know, to, to sort of to, to mimic the anxieties that so many of us are feeling now, um, you know, both politically in, in terms of that, but also like, I mean, she's in 2016, 
it wasn't as bad as it is now, but like just the burgeoning crisis of the misinformation age. So I wanted all of that, you know, there so the reader could bring sort of their own anxieties to it and hopefully make it feel that much more real um, without necessarily pinning it on, hey, this is the exact apocalypse kind of thing. But also it may or may, you know, it might not be happening. <laughs> okay, but you didn't really answer my question. I didn't. Oh, sorry. I don't it? think so. That was a good answer. Yeah. Um, but what do you what do you think about the the fascination that we have as a species oh. with the end yeah. of the world? Oh. Well, I mean, some of it I think is a little self-destructive, uh, self-destructive streak. Mm-hmm. I do think because you know, we've talked about a bunch of the reasons why people are sort of maybe drawn to it. I think one we didn't mention is that there's an undeniable, almost like a narcissistic urge or not urge or narcissistic sort of streak in, in so many of us to, to think, oh, I'm important enough to be one of the last ones here. I mean, there's that part of it. There's that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Know, there is that part like of subconscious appeal to, you know, is not a great adaptation. Being, as it was, being there like, for the closing night party. Like, I am legend, right? Being, you know, not yeah. necessarily Will Smith, but being, uh, I forget the character's name, you know, in the in the Masterson book, but being the one, the one person that, who figured it out, who could stay alive. Um, you know, there's like that fantasy, I think, appeal to it until you get into like, uh, as I sort of half joked about being bitten by a tick, but, you know. Until you get into the nitty gritty details, you realize it really wouldn't be that much fun being like one of the chosen one who gets to be, you know, gets to be the last person standing. Fair um, enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, and I think all of it, the other word is just the appeal of any sort of story about your future or, or about your possible future. I mean, that's where a sort of, I guess, borders science fiction, right? But sure. Um, sure. Yeah. And we well, want Master Blaster in there somewhere, I think. <laughs> Fuck yeah. I wanna, I, oh God, I would love a Master Blaster. I would, I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a short king. So probably I would, <laughs> I would be the Master Blaster, <laughs> you know, but, but I'm, I'm prepared to take on that role should I need to. We all want to be a Lord Humongous, mm. but the truth is in the end, we're all probably Master Blasters. Right. Yeah. I, I'm pretty humongous. So. I'll be your fucking master blast, dude. <laughs> Man, I'm gonna have no. dual wielding chainsaws. It's gonna be amazing. We're gonna <laughs> conquer. Um, now we just need to get uh, Paul into some assless chaps and give him a mohawk, and then we're, <laughs> oh, we're ready every, for the apocalypse. That's every Thursday around here. <laughs> <laughs> now we've we've talked around the story, but we haven't really, besides laying out the plot, we haven't really gotten into mm. the story. And there's there's a lot about this story I'd like to discuss. Yes. First and foremost, I want to talk about the scene where Bobby creates a glider. Yes. Uh-huh. With an unusual set of wings on it. And there's, so, you know, the first half of this story is sort of establishing um, Bobby's genius, right? Right. You know, so it lays out that, you know, he was, you know, mastering complex sentence structures is at, at, at like five years old or something. Mm-hmm. You know, he's... He's attending, you know, these uh, college level classes about. Uh, yeah, they mentioned physics and. Yes. Other, yeah. Yeah. Astrophysics and shit like that. Like he's really genius, just though. abnormally brilliant, you know, a once in a lifetime genius. So when he's when he's very young, still age, still in, in the single digits, he builds this air glider that he shows uh, Howard in in the family's garage and it's like a it's a little plane resting on top of a uh, uh, a wagon and 
It's got a saddle on it and um, <laughs> the wings are facing forward. And he's just like, he explains that they're double jointed and blah, 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 blah. Uh, end result is these two go out to a public park and Howard pushes Bobby down a very steep hill at the edge of this park uh, to see if the glider will work. And sure enough, it does. He goes fucking, you know, 50 feet or more up in the air and he's mm-hmm. like gliding all over the park. His brother's running around underneath screaming and the whole time I'm reading this, and I just reread it this morning in anticipation of this recording, but all I could think about was that movie Radio Flyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's Do y'all even remember built on, that movie? Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, even yeah. built on a Radio Flyer wagon. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's what rolls him down the hill. Yeah. And this story yeah. was written in 1986. And I'm like, on top of all the other problems that Radio Flyer has as a movie, <laughs> you know, and it has many. Um this seems like, I don't know. I, I'm not saying that Radio Flyer ripped off Stephen King, hmm. but it's a remarkable coincidence, right? Hmm. Yeah. Or it feels yeah. that way to me. Yeah. I forgot about that 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 movie. I, well, partly because I, I know of the movie, but I've never seen it. Hmm. But uh, I love that scene that you just described. And I think it's one of the most important scenes in the beginning of the book. I don't think the, or the beginning of the story. I don't think the story works without that. Um, no. It's and- sh- well, on my reread, I would just say, like, when I was reading it, that was it bordered the line of scary and madness. Like, there, you know, he yeah. describes the brother in the air sort of like cackling wildly. And just the way Stephen writes, like, he builds you to this place where it is sort of you're on the slide where you're not sure, oh, is this a cool thing? Or wait a minute. Yeah. This is, you know, you can see how this, you know, this genius is, you know, he's feeling his power. He's feeling like his, you know, his, you know, or as a kid, like, this is his version of omnipotence, etc. Um, and I think that's where sort of the adaptation falls <laughs> with, with the with with showing that because you don't get any of that. Like in in the story, it's not obvious, but there's definitely threat there. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting and, and smart how Stephen did it. Right, you can get the fear uh, from Howard as he seizes his brother. He goes on a journey going like, this isn't going to work. What are we doing? Why did I push him mm-hmm. uh, up into, because this is told, you know, uh, as a story from the older right. version of Howard, he like talks about what happens after during the events that he's describing. So like little things, little details like that always, always stick out to me. And the one here was how he was screaming after his brother so much. Then he's like, yeah. And the, the next day I couldn't talk above a whisper. Right. You know, just little details like that. I don't it, it just grounds everything in, in a in a way. I mean, I know that's kind of basic writing 101 stuff, but like I'm always impressed by those details when I come across them because this could easily have just been a right. a throwaway, you mm-hmm. know, thing for a magazine. But he puts in just the same amount of of layers and detail as he would, you know, one of his his novels and in, into these stories. Right. That that scene also serves another important function in that it conveys the exhilaration of invention mm-hmm. and an invention that works right so we get this we get this whole sequence and the worst thing that happens to bobby is he you know he eventually brings the thing back down to earth and just uh <laughs> he lands it between two park benches which <laughs> clip the wings off and then he falls off and bumps his head and starts crying yeah. you know that's the worst thing that happens to him here so it sort of establishes that Howard has seen, he has witnessed this, this, like I said, the, the exhilaration of invention and, um, and successful results, right. Which might make him later in life a little bit more, 
susceptible to agreeing to this sure. fucking crackpot plan where they're gonna like right. dump a bunch of the 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 nice water into a volcano that <laughs> that is erupting. And You're will... right. It's it's hard yeah. to discuss this story without it sounding fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. but, but it makes I, sense. Yeah, but I'd also like to point out this is also very much foreshadowing because yes. Because uh, Bobby, it, it does work, and then there's then it you know at the end he he gets hurt, right? So it's like it works, and then there's unintended consequences sure. at the end. Sure. So everything you know, like Paul was saying, this is kind of the key to this whole short story because this sets up everything that's about to happen, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, this is an early example, even at eight years old. You know, he's a genius, but uh, there's a little something he didn't think about. He didn't think about uh, bringing it back down. He only thought about, you know, pu- putting it up in the sky, you know. No, yeah. totally. Like he wasn't risk averse. And, you know, I think, as you mentioned, because they both emerge relatively unscathed, they're both more likely to, to take another chance because, oh, it worked out the time before and the time right. before that. Uh, no, I mean, it even right. foreshadows them going in the helicopter to drop in, you know, all the gallons, et cetera. Right. Another thing worth mentioning and that I kind of glanced at earlier was this, this, uh, the references this story makes towards Waco, Texas. Yeah. Um, Bobby travels down to Waco and eventually ends up in a town like 40 miles east or something mm-hmm. named La Plata. And <clears throat> as, as Paul mentioned earlier, uh this this town proves to be uh like the least violent least crime ridden place in the state of Texas there's references to the fact that you know he's saying he's the character is saying like uh and it's incredible like you know down in Waco or I guess it's La Plata but also, yeah. it's in that area. Like, yeah. you know, people don't shoot each other. They don't, <laughs> you know, there's no violence and and yada, yada, yada. And I'm all I'm thinking about as I'm reading this is like my mind flashing to when I was a kid and seeing on the news the the uh, David Koresh story, like right. dead bodies hanging out of windows and the right. fucking feds coming in there with like, mo- <laughs> like, well, not tanks, they, but they, they were like vomitive away from Waco. So that's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, like, as I was reading it, um, that's when I went and looked up, like, okay, when was this written exactly? You know, because Nightmares and Dreamscapes, I think, came out after the Waco siege had occurred, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, it was 93, 94 is Nightmares and Dreamscapes. 93 sounds right. Maybe. Yeah, 93 is the book. I don't know when Waco happened waco well let's let's do this on the air people love hearing piping um holy shit 93 so so nightmares and dreamscapes if i remember correctly came out later in 93 is that correct maybe midway september okay yeah thereabouts i remember only because i got the audiobooks that year for christmas Mm -hmm. um so this would have happened mere months before like fucking this book was published. <laughs> um, but again, it, it's kind of kind of doesn't matter since it was published, uh, yeah. you know, seven years prior. But I thought that was interesting. I, right. And I, and I, I thought it was a, a bitter irony while uh, while rereading this story. Yeah, hmm. for sure. 
though, I mean, I do like uh, sort of the explanation you know, that the story gives us why Waco was chosen, even though there's a lot of guns here and you know, just going by the numbers of violent acts per capita, et cetera. Um, yeah, that's a really cool th- little thing he introduces into the story. <clears throat> you know, how do you feel about this? Hmm. I was thinking as I was reading this, like this could have been this is a great short story, but it honestly feels like a concept that could have been expanded to novel length if he really wanted hmm. to. Like if you wanted to go through the machinations of all, all of this, you know, at length. Right. As um, a plot, yeah. Yeah, absolutely as a plot. There's like tons of shit you could do with this concept. Um, I'm not it, sure if the way he wrote it could sustain a novel because I think it's very specifically a short yeah. no, narrative no, no, no. with Just, the ticking time bomb and the, right. the slow degradation of the of the narrator, you know? True. Uh, although that could be an interesting... The basic narrative, thing. though, right. could apply to a plot. You know, it's right. funny. If you would ask me yesterday before I watched the adaptation, I'd probably been like, oh, yeah. But after having seen the adaptation, which is incredibly faithful to the text, yeah, I don't think it works very well, I think... No, like it's hard. I think it would be hard to do the story or, or sort of some form of it in a longer form. I think sort of this mm. desperate him writing it out because I think the longer, and I think this is purposeful in the story, like the, the longer you leave space, you know, it's like a 45 minute episode. So there is more time for you to think about this. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it's hard for me to shut off the part of my brain to be like, wait a minute, wouldn't they, <laughs> you know, wouldn't the FDA like, you know, you know, they, I don't think they would give him a ticker tape parade like for, you know, choosing upon himself to dump all the stuff into a, a volcano, <laughs> right. to, you know, to make everyone drink all this water and people would be freaking the fuck out. But I never once thought that when I was reading the story, both right. originally when I was reading it and on the reread. And part of it is because of the charm of the narrator and how sort of fast everything happens. Um, you don't have the time to let that inner sort of uh, skeptic come in. Now, mm. I mean, there are types of stories where you do want that inner skeptic to come in and, you know, cabin i definitely invite that i want people you know reading it to have a hard time discerning whether or not like as a connection to the to what we were talking about earlier you know that's a totally different kind of story so in the adaptation i kind of thought it didn't work because we were seeing visual images of of now even though it feels weirdly dated it's only what like 10 years old yeah it felt like a very dated sort of uh thing so oddly even though it's like super super close to what's actually in the short story i didn't it definitely does not work as well as the short story does in print it's this is written by Lawrence D. Cohen, who I believe wrote Carrie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. wrote the De Palma Carrie. Um, oh, wow. He and I think he wrote the first night of it as well, the mm-hmm. miniseries. Like he's written a lot mm-hmm. of King King adaptations. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them successful, some of them not. But uh, you're right. This one is like it feels. <laughs> would know what this feels like to me is is because I rewatched or I I think it must have been the first time I didn't have any memory when I revisited the Nightmares and Dreamscapes uh, episode of this with Ron Livingston and Henry Thomas. Uh, so I watched that and then I reread the story. And when you do it that close, it's like mm. <laughs> what what the impression I got was like they said, "Okay, Lawrence, uh, we are shooting in two weeks. We decided <laughs> just now we want to do this story." Um, you have two days to turn in your script. And he goes, well, let me just uh, copy and paste this whole two pages from the book. You know, I mean, the dialogue is, yeah. is like, because it's told from a pers- first person point of view. And right. then, you know, it's transplanted in the, uh, in the adaptation in a very smart way. I think changing him from a writer to a documentarian. Yeah, that is smart. 
Um, and because you can get these, the same effect as reading the degradation verse, you know, with him narrating mm-hmm. the camera as a documentarian, which I thought was, was a very interesting thing, but you can tell that that was like the idea. And then he was just like, well, I'm out of time. I just gonna throw in every bit of dialogue. I'm not going to come up with anything. I maybe I'll every once in a while, cut a couple of lines here or there because it has goddamn or a curse word in it that right. can't air on TNT. Um, yeah, no, it, that that was it's really it was a really odd experiment. I think watching this and then rereading it. Uh, <laughs> uh, they also change a few interesting things. Like we talked about how the uh, the book or the short story rather is is a little bit of a nuclear scare thing. But the inciting incident here, they updated it to be nine eleven being yeah. the the thing that prompts him to go. Why are we so cruel to each other? And and we I have to stop this somehow. Um, I don't know. It, it it's an interesting angle to to take i think but uh but it lacks a little bit of that like we are doomed and you know uh doomed as a species i guess that you right. get from that right. whole cold war right. thing pre-berlin <clears throat> wall falling and because it's really weird now i'm thinking about it like like i remember i was alive you know in i was born in 81 so it's like i i was around and have memories of that the end of that cold war war era and even though we've had similar threats you know especially now you know with the the war in ukraine and and russia escalating it doesn't feel as omnipresent or as like inevitable i guess as it felt like when i was a kid right now 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 we think about like i i spend more time worried about i don't know you know our democracy being tumbled or or uh you know a variant of covid that's going to be much deadlier you know it's like Mm -hmm. those are the things that are on my mind yeah um it's just interesting uh comparing like what what people were scared of at the time of the adaptation versus what king was scared of when he wrote the short story yeah i I found myself wishing that and obviously it would have been much more expensive um you know that they had said it in the 80s or 90s um as opposed to i don't know are we gonna think of 2011 as this like weird in between time because that's almost what it is in my head now Mm. um yeah, because like if you're gonna put it in 2011, although it doesn't feel like 2011, right? I guess at the end, um, it feels more like I guess 2001 is when he reacts to it. So like it's the timeline of like when when is happening and and what. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's you know just missing a little bit of well, if you're gonna do the present day, like you know where's the, I don't know where's the online outrage or where's any sort of online reaction or, or things like that. I don't know. Yeah, where's Alex Jones freaking out that you're you're right. putting uh, all this <laughs> magic water, you know, into a volcano and exploding? I mean, because that does that sounds like QAnon shit, right? That sounds like Hillary Clinton had a plan yeah. to pacify the you know well, see, the world. This is kind of what I was getting at earlier, like, um, oh, about expanding the story. Yeah. yeah, like I don't, I don't think you could. Obviously, you could not use the same framework mm-hmm. for this short story for a novel. It just for the obvious reasons that you you already laid out. But I think conceptually, the idea of a brother who has a genius brother who eventually finds a way to cure the world of war, basically. Right. Um, and then that blows up in his face. I think that's right. you could remove the framework from it, remove the bookends. And I don't want to say the gimmick of it because that sounds dismissive. But yeah. You know, there's just purely conceptually and most of the narrative, I think, I I, I do think could sustain a, a novel that I would absolutely read. Mm. And, you know, I mean, King wrote it this way for a certain reason. But I've also I've also heard before that there are short stories that he's written that 
um, he originally started thinking it would be a novel and then realized in, you know, mm. very early on, uh, no, this is a short story. I think the 10 o'clock people also from, uh, uh, mm-hmm. nightmares and dreamscapes is one of those stories, right? Like that was originally intended to be a novel. And then he just was like, no, we'll wrap this up in 20 <laughs> some odd pages. Right. Uh, I, I, yeah, there's something about this concept I find really, really interesting. And, and the, um, the personal connection between like the narrator and his genius brother, it's not the genius brother yeah. narrating it. It's right. like the next in command. I, I, I find interesting in, in that way. I think there's, there's some, a little bit of revival to that where revival right. is sort of like, mm-hmm. what if Frankenstein, but written from Igor's perspective, you know? Um, yeah, I stand by that opinion. Yeah. Fuck y'all. No, that makes sense. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it'd be kind of fun to have him even like in the shorter format of that, that show, like have him like initially you did what? And people are like so angry at him. But then after a year, it's like, hey, everything's cool. And then right. you have it turned yeah. again. That's yeah. when you get the ticker tape parade, baby. Right. Yeah. As as the world turns into idiocracy around you. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I I do like that. And I also like that the brother isn't the dumb brother, right? Mm-hmm. Like in any other family, he would have been the the, the favorite child, right? He would have been the star yeah. star kid. But he just happened. He was an incredibly intelligent, you know, driven character you know or a person and his brother just happened to be you know fucking einstein i think that the natural inclination for a lot of writers would have been and then he's just the average everyday you know kind of salt of the earth you know guy that has his head on straight because the mm-hmm. the intellectual can't see the the forest for the trees you know or whatever you know it's like uh, I do like that that he gets caught up in it and he gets kind of caught up in the dream of 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 what it can be and and uh, and whatnot I don't know, you guys. I think Stephen King knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, that guy's got a future. I think it'd be interesting to kind of look at how King has used this format uh, in other works. And he does a lot with short stories and novellas like Survivor Type is very mm-hmm. similar to this in that you can see the author's uh, degradation, degradation. As, as he's you know writing and he's losing his limbs and and uh you know eating himself and whatnot uh and going a little bit crazy uh and mm-hmm. you know the mist of course is is told as like i gotta sit down and tell you this story and and god knows what comes next kind of thing um you know i, I you know I, there's something there i think there's something there to kind of look at you know and i wonder what it is you know in king's mind when he goes this is the time where this story demands to be told like this and not just told from like a mm-hmm. a god's eye point of view you know do you have any insight on that, Paul, as a, as a as an author yourself? Like, right. if, like, do you know when the story dictates, you know, how it is being told? Right. Uh, I, it's, I think it depends on the story, but I mean, that's right. definitely always a decision you have to make. Like, how close you're going to be? You know, how close is the narrator going to be? Are you going to be sort of the godlike narrator? Um, I think you know, for short fiction, there's such like a long, grand tradition of having someone else tell actual the story that didn't happen to them or, or, or they right. were like the bit player or maybe not the bit player, but they weren't the protagonist. Right. Right. Even like even in nightmares and dreamscapes, you know, one of his more famous stories, crouch end, right. Really? Yeah. Yes. The main story is this, you know, the American woman is telling the police and the police guys telling the other policemen, the story, you know, as about what to happen. So, you know, when you sort of layer that, I mean, one, that's kind of how we all, I think that's, oddly comforting to have that approach because that's how we all experience stories. Someone else is mm. telling us a story, right? 
you know, right. kids, it's story time. We love having someone else tell us a story. Um, but because of that, you get to sort of layer in a little bit of ambiguity, even if it's not the point of the story, because like, well, we have this extra filter of someone else telling a story that had happened to someone else in a, in a way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would be fascinated to know. I mean, I think he obviously he made the the best choice for, you know, uh, the end of the whole mess as to who tells the story for right. a variety of reasons. But no, I mean, I'm fascinated in, you know, the choice of narrator and. I don't know, Peter Straub, I don't know if M.R. James did that kind of thing, but I know Peter Straub loved to use that narrative technique, especially in right. his novels, right? The Chowder Society uh, <laughs> and Ghost Story. Um, contemporary novelist John Langan does that all the time. I'm actually rereading right. his The Fisherman, which if read, uh, listeners out there haven't read The Fisherman, you should drop everything you're doing and read that. Mm. I'm glad you brought up Crouch End here because it gives me yet another opportunity to bitch about the adaptation. <laughs> That they made for this Nightmares and Dreamscape <laughs> series. Um, y'all, it sounds like both y'all rewatched mm-hmm. the end of the whole mess before yes. this, right? Right. I I only seen it once, and that was like, all right, I get it. You know, um, I like I prefer the short story. So before we did this, I I only reread the short story. Um, but anyhow, uh, end of the whole mess is like one of the lower on the totem poles or the totem pole of that, that series, but crouch end I think is the absolute bottom, but Mm. that may be because, you know, crouch end is my favorite King short Mm. story. Um, You're right in the fact that there's like sort of a, a a Russian nesting doll to, to the narrative there where it's like someone telling someone to something else who's now telling the story to somebody else or, or whatever it is. But I will probably go to my grave being mad about how they adapted uh, <laughs> crouch end for this, for this series. Yeah. It's hard. It's, it's hard for me to recommend this series in any way because I'm so, I'm still so mad about mm. what they, they did to my beautiful boy. Crouch end. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you, what, we're off topic now, but Paul, what what's your take on Crouch End? Oh yeah, I mean it's a great story. Um, I haven't seen the adaptation, so thank you. I, I guess I for the love of God. At this point now, <laughs> yes, please don't um, watch it. it. It's funny. It's only in recent years that I I guess came to the slow rock headed realization that you know Stephen does a lot of Lovecraftian fiction. Um, yeah, you know, and I started rereading Crouch End after the end of the whole mess, and like he even mentions Lovecraft, you know. By yeah. name within the story itself. Very explicitly. Um, yeah. yeah. And one of my, you know, I think I mentioned this to you both. One of my favorite novellas or novelettes of Stevens is N, which is yes. a very Lovecraftian sort of piece. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So it's weird. Like, even though I've, I've lived uh, near Providence, I went to college in Providence, but I never <laughs> read Lovecraft until, mm. until after I read everything by King and everybody else. And I was like, eh, I, I much more enjoy other people doing like cosmic horror, Lovecraftian things than Lovecraft himself. For it's a variety hard. of reasons. Lovecraft isn't yeah yeah for a variety of reasons yeah, yeah um Lovecraft like setting aside the uh, racism yeah and what have you uh is a, a kind of a, st- a steep hill I think for some people to climb because it's so the writing is so antiquated mm-hmm. um but obviously he's the 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 king daddy of uh cosmic horror and and that sort of thing but I I I wish that. For as often uh, as King has returned to that well, I I, I do wish he'd do even more of it. Mm-hmm. Like if I don't think you can, uh, 
Eric might argue with me on this about revival being the answer. But <clears throat> if 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 King wrote a straight up Lovecraftian novel, which in my opinion, he is not yet like that would make me the happiest person in the world because he does right. it so fucking well. Like he's he brings a humanity to it that yes. that I don't think Lovecraft's work actually had. And that makes right. it work even better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I'm just I'm endlessly fascinated with the concept of cosmic horror, or existential horror, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. I really, really wish he would. You know, that's maybe that's just not his thing, but. Yeah. Oh, I definitely think it's his thing on some level. I mean, he I mean, just in, especially in short form, he's gone back to it so often. And I would argue that, you know, uh, revival, if not full Lovecraftian horror novel is definitely Lovecraftian. It, it's it's full Lovecraftian for about yeah. 20, 25 pages. Right. right. You know, and that and that works. God knows we love revival around here. We yeah. probably sold more copies of that than any marketing campaign ever did because we <laughs> insist that everyone read it. But yeah. um, I, I don't think it's a full blown Lovecraftian novel, like no. beginning to end. It, it's an amalgam, and King does that in uh, even in fairy tale. You know, the more recent book you know that's true yeah it has essentially an eldritch god trying to get out and destroy a fantasy land and our world at the same time you know at the end and and uh the prince the evil prince or whatnot you know is this kind of lovecraftian monster and what's his name like golgamesh or like golgam gargamagog is the name of magog yes yeah is the name of the the big creature um and the the something slayer not the king slayer what the fuck is flight killer flight killer Kingslayer, it's a Game of Thrones. Sorry, um, uh, but yeah, no, it's it is interesting how the only times he seems to full throatedly tackle Lovecraft stuff is in short fiction, but he'll flirt with it a lot in his his longer fiction. I mean, even The Dark Tower has Lovecraftian Fair. elements like the Thinnies and right. and you know the Discordia and everything. That's very Lovecraftian. You know, the old gods, you know, trying to break through, sure. and topple the tower. Um, but yeah, it's not the main focus. It's, uh, you know, from a yeah. gate might be a little bit Lovecraftian too. I from, think. It is. Yep. It for sure is the mist, obviously. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, he, he dips into that well a lot, but like to Scott's point, he never, he hasn't done a full throated, like, uh, full book where that is the main, uh, flavor. It's always mixed with something, two or three other things. Right. right. So. Do you know how excited I would be if Stephen King, like if he combined the end of the whole mess <laughs> with like a, a Lovecraftian sensibility, you know, and it was just a 600 page fucking bad boy that <laughs> that like that ultimately um, charted like like what would happen if Cthulhu rose out of the ocean? Right. You know, and that was, you know, uh, it, it begins with that. And then that's the novel takes place within a year or two after that happens. Like, oh, my, I would I would melt the fuck down <laughs> if if he did something like that. Like that would be my one of my ideal King books. I bet that would be so fucking good. Let me give one more recommendation. It'll I think it'll be out by the time the episode is out. Uh, but it's Mariana Enriquez, who's an Argentinian writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, her publisher, she has a book coming in February called Our Shade of Night. And it is mm. it's a 700-page epic that her publisher is sort of 
promoting as Ro- Roberto Bolaño meets Stephen King, but it's mm-hmm. really Roberto Bolaño, you know, Argentinian fiction mixed with cosmic horror. Now there mm. aren't giant beasties, but um, it, it's definitely a cosmic horror novel, and it's mm. one of my favorite novels I've ever read. What's it wow. called again? It's called Our Shade, Our Share of Night. Sorry, it's hard for Our me. Share to say. Of it, night. It's hard for me to say with my innate Boston accent. Our <laughs> share of night. You can't understand a word I'm saying if I say it that way. I will. Um, I will definitely seek that. Yeah, out. it's so it's so damn good. It's so horrifying. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm excited for people to read that book. So I guess uh, if we're going to wrap this up, here's my mm. final question for you, Paul. Um, right. How likely do you think? Oh, ding dong. We <laughs> are. This is sort of a callback to the earlier question. Yeah. But how likely do you think it is that we will see the end of the world in our lifetimes? Oh, Jesus. Uh, Give me a percentage. Yeah, I don't want to say it. I don't know what's called. <laughs> I know, but you got to say Yeah, it. call it like 20%. I mean, sort of the truth of it is... Uh, you know, like, yeah, I guess the end of the entire world, I think, would be a difficult thing to achieve. Um, but, I mean, there are societies that go through apocalypses all the time. I mean, political yeah. upheavals, economic, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think in a lot of ways, <laughs> humans are going to be harder to kill off than, you know, the proverbial cockroaches. Um, you know, that said, short of like, you know, nuclear war, et cetera, you know, then there are obviously ways where everybody would go. So, yeah, I mean that stuff kind of really scares me and bothers me, so I kind of want to put a percentage on it because I don't want to be, hey, I was right. See everybody, or, be happy yeah. to be wrong, you know. Right. Be on Twitter like Paul called it first. <laughs> you should have listened to that episode. Week, you would have yeah. been ready, yeah. right? I, I think it's a high possibility we're going to get see shit get real bad. But uh, I'm kind of with Paul. We're not going to. I don't think in our lifetimes we're going to see the end of all things. Yeah, you know, I don't think so either. No, we're we're going to see California fall into the fucking ocean, or we're going to see you know we're going to see some horrific shit. We're going to you know the climate change is only going to get worse. Sure. We're going to see some really bad stuff. But uh, uh, yeah, I think we're probably a good ways away from humanity being gone. And, uh, and as George Carlin once said, uh, and it's always stuck with me since I heard it was, uh, you know, everybody's always saying, save the planet. It's like the planet's fine. It's like the people are fucked. (laughs) It's like, we're going away. The planet will still be here, folks. It's been through so much worse shit than us. Ice ages, tectonic plate shifts. It's like been through much worse than human beings. Uh, planet's fine. We're the ones that are going away. And that so, sounds exactly like something Bobby would say in the story. <laughs> per- perfect way to to tie mm. it back to the the main theme, Scott. Good, well done. Yeah, I have my moments. Um, so Paul, knock at the cabin is coming out when this is February, coming out February third. Yeah, February third, and this will air week of release. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you uh, What are you working on next? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I, I should mention that there will be a movie tie-in edition of, of The Cabin at the End of the World coming out like the Tuesday after the movie premiere. So it'll have like a movie poster art. Right. But I have a, um, my next book is a short story collection uh, coming. Well, the paperback of The Paul Bears Club is coming in March. The Paul Bears Club is a novel that came out this summer. Mm-hmm. But coming this summer, a new book, it's called The Beast You Are, which is a short story collection that features... Uh, I'm only going to say it's like, it's sort of like a short story collection that Steven did, but he had the mist in the front. I'm not saying my story is equal to the mist in any way other than, <laughs> page, other than page count. <laughs> uh, but this short story collection has a big sort of novella in it called the beast you are. Hmm. Uh, and it's an anthropomorphic animal novella that features uh, a hero dog, 
a giant monster that that comes to take sacrifices every 30 years and a cat that's a slasher. And it was the most fun thing. <laughs> It's the most fun thing I've ever written. I don't know if it good, but I had the most no, fun. No, that sounds fun as fuck, dude. It, it, do, it does, I, I will say, Paul, uh, concerningly, it does sound like you threw Stephen King and Dean Koontz into a Brundle pod, and <laughs> this is what came out on the other end. Oh, it's my... Hero dogs and monsters, and then, yeah. then killer no, cats. My, my love letter to uh, Watership Down and, and Wrath okay, of Okay, good. Oh, holy yeah. shit. I love that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, is this all previously released stuff, or is it all new? So most of the stories have been previously published, you know, not in my own books, but like, you know, in anthologies, but the, the novella, you know, which is the, the biggest chunk is totally original, totally new. Ooh. You know, I, I have questions about this because, you know, um, I'm, I, I was curious, I was reading something earlier about one of, oh, it was when you brought up bizarre bad dreams mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, went to look up the name of that uh last short story in there that's like post-apocalyptic it's called summer thunder by the Mm. way but uh as i was looking at the lineup of stories in that collection i noted that you know the vast majority of them were previously published yeah do you when you have a release where it's all previously available material is that less personal to you somehow than an entirely brand new work um, that's a great question. Uh, I would say no, because I mean, honestly, you know, you know, I'm super thankful for all the editors that bought the other stories, you know, including, sure. you know, the great Alan Datlow, but you know, but the truth of it is, is that, you know, most of my readers probably still haven't read those stories. They didn't go out and buy, even though they should have <laughs> didn't buy like the echoes, great short story anthology that Ellen had published, mm-hmm. you know, and some of the stories I wrote were from really small, obscure stuff that most people wouldn't have read. So yeah. So, I mean, in some ways it does feel like, Hey, you know, I've known these stories for a while, but um, you know, this, antho- uh, this, the, the novella in particular, I'm like really excited to see what, how people react to the odd thing. Um, mm. But yeah, no, it's different than a novel, I suppose, but. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you online? Should they want to follow you? Oh, leave me alone. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Should uh, you want to inundate for, Paul with yeah. memes and gifts and yeah. all those for things? For now, I'm on Twitter at Paul G. Tremblay. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Instagram, the same handle, at Paul G. Tremblay. The G is my middle initial because my father has the same name. Yeah, you don't, don't want to be that. confused with him. How no, selfish. <laughs> was he an author as well? No, he was not. Um, <laughs> and if you go to my website, paultremblay.net, you can sign up for my free newsletter. Uh, which I promise doesn't spam your inbox very often. It's like once a month, you know, and I usually write some sort of essay for it kind of thing. Nice. Right on. Well, we thank you so much for being here today. And uh, we uh, wish for all the success on the, uh, the adaptation and hope that it jars forth a, a few other adaptations of yours. Thank you. thank you for being here and we hope you'll come back. Yeah, this is a blast anytime. Many thanks to Paul Tremblay for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have Paul back on the show. Mm-hmm. There, there are a few people where we know that, like, ah, oh, this is time for us to kick our feet back, <laughs> your feet up. We're going to lean back. Just let this person run with it. And, and uh, uh, Paul's a very smart guy, and we, we, uh, I always look forward to having him on the show. Any excuse, and he happened to have a really great excuse to uh, come on the show this time. Indeed. And uh, we've, we've, you know, been really lucky with a lot of guests like that lately, where yeah. I don't feel like we're having to do much of the heavy lifting. 
uh, people are coming in here uh, and really kicking ass. So um, shout out to all of the guests we've had so far this year. Every one of you has been killing it. And especially Paul. Congrats on the movie coming out this week, Paul. We're 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 all very excited to see it. Yes, we were going to uh, see it tonight. And then yeah, weather fact, fucking. Yeah. Yeah. Stopped but, us from making it. Yeah. But then it decided to uh, ice over a little bit. And, uh, you know, Austin and uh, Texas in general uh we're it's very well equipped to deal with the cold apparently so mm-hmm. but no Famously. i don't know scott if you've noticed but like i, I kind of knew the screening was going to be doomed because uh like school was being canceled and and shit it's just like oh i i have a, a friend that was planning like this giant corporate dinner that got canceled and they've been planning it for months and it's just like oh, oh shit yeah well i don't think our our uh, little screening of knock at the cabin's gonna <laughs> gonna stick around we're gonna have to see it with the normal people over the weekend which is totally yes. fine with the peasants like Ugh. the riff like animals yes yeah that's oh. fine i'll check it out this weekend i'm looking forward to it looks good yeah, me too and yeah. uh yeah have a night it's, it feels like a good like popcorn movie good old yeah you know night adapting this particular book yeah gonna be good um i think it's time to just clumsily segue right into the uh, the preview events of what's coming so next wednesday in the main feed the topic will be the mist Ooh, get to talk about them creepy spiders with human teeth again and our guest is a first timer he is a comedian um he is somebody that i've been following for three no for longer than that since since the the dark days of uh uh, uh, of Trump ascending into office. Apologies, earmuffs to all the two conservative listeners that still listen to the show. Um, but since the dark days of 2016, like this guy has been kind of a beacon of uh, progressive comedy. For the listeners, this 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 was a guest that Vespi was more familiar with than I was, and you've already run through pretty much. You've already you run through about. everything that I could say <laughs> without immediately giving away who it is. If you've you know? been paying attention to social media at all since 2016 uh, or, you know, late night comedy or, you know, you've seen this guy and you've seen him uh, pop up. And uh, it's actually the first of two back to back episodes we had with comedians because mm. it looks like the week after is also going to be a comedian unless some weird scheduling thing occurs. We've we've already got them both recorded. Both of them are great episodes. Um, and I will. <clears throat> I guess it that leaves it to me to talk about what we're doing on the Patreon this Friday. Um, last week, we ran a bonus episode that was about single location horror with uh, a film critic and, uh, you know, horror enthusiast by the name of Brett Arnold. That episode was, um, well, if you listen to it, you know, it went a little off the rails. Um, we ended up like covering all kinds of different topics while still under the umbrella of single location horror that sometimes were relevant, sometimes weren't. And frankly, we decided to run the episode anyway, because we thought it was really entertaining. Well, that led to a conversation with some of our patrons on uh, the Kingcast discord, wherein we asked them like, well, how far off the mark are you willing to let us go on these bonus episodes? Like, <laughs> Could we do the occasional bonus episode where we're just talking about the shit we're watching or playing or reading right now that we really like? Or does or like, do you all want to keep it all king themed? And remarkably, I was surprised by this. Um, the the listeners seemed very open to the idea of us uh, going that far off 
topic. So um, yeah, we're going to give it a go. Open, but enthusiastic about it. So yes, yeah, indeed. All right, let's do it. So that's what we're going to do this Friday. We're going to this is going to be a conversation between Eric and I and what we're what we're seeing, watching, playing, listening to all those kind of things uh, right now and why we like them. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be some overlap in terms of what we're watching, but we are thrilled to have this level of freedom to do a bonus episode. Uh, Vespi and I have many opinions about a bazillion other things that have nothing to do with Stephen King. And um, this will be the first episode where we really get to attack that uh, without worrying about having to mention like, oh, this is a little off topic. Uh, yeah. So I'm I don't know about you, but I am pants weddingly excited about this. <laughs> Absolutely. There's so much stuff to talk about. If you want to listen to that, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash the Kingcast and sign up. Lots of good stuff over in the Patreon. It's worth it. We make it worth it. Indeed. All right. Well, that should do it. We'll see you all in the main feed next week with the mist. See you then, folks. Bye. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>